Hello. We're really glad that you joined us. We hope that you're doing well today. We're really glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we can look at life through a lot of different lenses and perspectives. And one of the lenses that we often look at life, through, at life at is through the lens of risk. We should understand risk. Risk is the analysis of exposure that might lead to loss or gain. Uh, in life, what dangers or difficulties or challenges are we exposing ourselves to? On the other hand, what benefits and gain can we obtain because we've had that exposure? So that's the way we look at life through the lens of risk. Another way we can look at life is through the lens of faith. And when we talk about faith, we're talking about trust and confidence in God and the willingness to depend upon God in various circumstances. A great example of this can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 14, where Jesus has been walking on the water in the midst of this great storm, and the disciples are on a boat in the storm, and they're very afraid. And they see this ghost-type thing walking, and they're really freaked out. But Jesus calls out in Matthew chapter 14, and in verse 27, it says, Take heart and desire, do not be afraid. And so Peter, Peter sees this, and he's motivated by faith, and he cries out, answers him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So we see this little instance that Peter had great confidence in Jesus. We, we Even though Peter seems to be, a, you know, lives a little bit on the wild side sometimes, it might seem, uh, we don't get the idea that he has made it a habit to try to walk on water, especially in the middle of a very strong storm. So he's being motivated by his trust in Jesus. If that's really Jesus, he will bid me come out and I'll be able to walk on the water just as he's walking on the water. That's a profound expression of faith because we all understand, what Peter understands quite well, uh, also that humans don't walk on water. That's just one of the things we just don't do. We get in the water, we get in the water. Uh, We might very well drown the water. Walking on it is not something we do, but through his trust in Jesus, he was empowered to walk on the water. When he wavered in that trust, he began to sink. And so that helps us understand a lot about faith in God. Are we willing to trust in God? How much are we willing to trust God? How much are we willing to depend upon him? And what happens if we don't depend on him sufficiently? So there's risk and there's faith. And in reality, we're always grappling with risk and faith. And there's a tension that you can see on a spectrum regarding risk and faith. There is on the one side an overabundant concern for safety that leaves to little willingness to expose oneself to risk and thus for faith. And on the other side, there can be a complete lack of concern for risk that can lead to recklessness and going beyond what God intended. And these are very significant issues in our lives, and this, these questions touch all of our lives, because wherever we're at in life, at any moment in life, there's, that's always an open question. How much risk am I exposing myself to? How much risk should I be exposing myself to? Uh, how much faith do I have? How much faith should I really be having? 
And so what should we do about all this? What does the scripture have to say about risk and faith? And that's what we'd like to talk about a little bit today. So first let's look at the risk. And especially risk management. Because that's one of the everyday features of life. And it's something that we just do every single day whether we think about it or not. Um, we understand this in the big things. If we decide to love, if we decide to get married, if we decide to have children, if we have any kind of relationship, we've got risk. But quite frankly, getting up in the morning, getting in the shower is a risk. Uh, getting in a car is a very, very risky endeavor. Um, whatever we do involves some exposure to risk. There's always a cost-benefit analysis going on. We decide whether we're willing to take the risks in life with the special sum. Are we willing to risk the exposure to pain and to suffering, to the exposure to hurt, the exposure that we might end up having to take care of that person, or the exposure of we might have to live with that person the rest of our lives, uh, or whatever that exposure might be. Uh, are we when it comes to children, there's a lot of exposure. Are we willing to risk um, putting our heart out there and uh, pour our heart and soul into these children and what's going to be the, the result? We, you know, Are we going to be willing to risk the rejection it, that might come or the heartbreak of seeing our children go in a way that is not good and not healthy? Uh, even when it comes to getting in the shower, you could slip and fall and break your head. Uh, getting in the car, you know the risks you're taking when you get in the car, right? Uh, and it's not even just you. You can calculate that risk as, as effectively as you can when it comes to your own power, and you still have absolutely no control over that guy driving just as big of a car as you, if not bigger, uh, on the other side of the road, and who could crash into you theoretically at any moment. And so, uh, in all of these things, we're asking ourselves, is the benefit we're going to gain worth the exposure to the risk of the loss? You know, with marriage, is that companionship and sharing life with somebody worth all of that pain and suffering that might come? The same with children. Uh, with employment or investment, we see this very clearly. That's where we normally talk about risk and management. You know, uh, if I have employment, am I willing to work, do, put all this effort into it? Is, is it worth it for the wage I'm getting? Uh, with an investment, am I willing to uh, expose myself to a lot of risk to perhaps make a lot of money or lose the money? Or do I want to play it safer and expose myself to less risk? Probably not make as much money, but more likely not lose money. These are all questions that we have. And there's not necessarily easy answers all the time. And it is a biblical question as well. And we see this in Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, Jesus has a bunch of disciples following after him. A bunch of people, crowds are following after him as well. And so he turns to them and he wants to talk to them. Now, so many people, when we try to talk to them about Christianity, a lot of times we, we want to do an unintentional kind of leading on where we, you know, we, we try to get them interested in the idea and then we start dropping hints slowly but surely about some of the challenges that may come with it. That we try to, you know, get them buying in a little bit before we just lay out. What, what's at stake. Jesus never does this. So he's got these crowds following him, and he just throws it out there in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he just comes out there with the 
just putting it on you've got to consider everything you hold dear less important than following me. You've got to be willing to take up an object of your humiliation, degradation, shame, and, and even death on a daily basis to follow me. Not exactly in, in inspiring words of confidence. Not, not, not something that would have cleared the PR uh, department very easily. But that's what Jesus says. And, and he doesn't back off from it. He then provides these illustrations. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sent a delegation and asked for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So right there, he's, he's providing these illustrations of risk management. If you want to build something, anybody wants to build something, you've got to first know how much money you have. Uh, if you don't have enough money, uh, you're not going to be able to complete it, and you're going to look stupid. You know, if you're a king and, and you want to fight, you've got to be a tactician about it. If you don't have the manpower and resources to, to have, manage the fight, you're going to want to seek terms that are more advantageous for you. And he uses these as an illustration to say, if you, you, you've got to renounce all that you have to be my disciple. You've got to go through the risk management. You've got to, as we'll say, and you hear frequently in Christian circles, count the cost. So, is it worth it? Is it worthwhile to give all that you have, all that you feel secure about, trust in God, uh, even though it might mean the loss of everything you've ever held dear? Well, if this whole Christianity business is wrong, and there really is no God, Jesus is not risen from the dead, then it's a colossal waste of resources. A we are of all men most to be pitied, and uh, the likelihood of being disappointed is quite strong. But if Jesus is the Son of God, and God is the Creator, and he will judge the living and the dead through his son, then there's really no greater benefit. And the foolish thing, and the riskiest and most dangerous, reckless thing, would be to reject him and to live in pleasure, or live in uh, the path of least resistance for uh, 50, 60, 70 years, only to gain uh, separation from light, life, and love, uh, and torment for all eternity. As we can see warned about in Second Thessalonians 1, 6-9. And that gets us to one of the big things in our society that we've gotten to, and that's this trust in safety. We've made an idol out of safety. That there's always a benefit to play it safe. A lot of people tell you it's better to curb your intentions and desires and efforts so that you don't get beyond that safe area to enter into those areas that's dangerous and to fail and suffer. And so there's a lot of emphasis being put on safety. I mean, I don't think that requires a whole lot of comment in modern American society that everything they try to do is to be ever safer. Playground equipment is designed to be ever safer. A lot less fun, but theoretically safer. Uh, insurance. We all have insurance. I mean, insurance companies certainly wants us to keep safe because they don't want to have to pay out, right? And so there's always incentives for safety. And 
behavior is monitored to try to keep it safe. And even in religious matters, it becomes easy to try to find a safe position, a safe place um, uh, of belief and, and, and things of that nature. But is there really such a thing as a safe position? Some people think it's safer not to get in relationships, because if you don't love, you don't get hurt. But then you're risking in not getting hurt. You're risking isolation, loneliness, and regret. Because that's what you're going to get often if you aren't willing to risk the pain of, of love. You can talk about safe investments or a safe job, but we learned in the recent financial crash that even things that seem safe in moments of crisis aren't that safe. And there's a lot of there, there's a lot of really bad situations, as you can imagine, where uh, money ain't even going to matter anymore. Uh, and the only thing that's going to keep people alive is uh, cooperating with each other. And therefore, uh, even safe investments uh, uh, are, are not necessarily safe. Likewise, with the spiritual path of safety, the, the spiritual path of safety, we, we, we are told of one person who tried to follow that path of safety. We're told about him in, in Mark, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. He's also in Luke chapter 19, uh, 12 through 26. In both accounts, it involves three t- servants and money. In Luke's account, he's talking about minas. And there's all these servants, and he gave these servants... Uh, ten minas, and he goes away, and the master comes back, and these these many of these servants had taken the money, and they had made more money, uh, and so what they had done is they had they had exposed the ten minas they were given to risk. They risked the ten minas. Uh, they could have come back with fewer than ten minas, but they prospered, and so the first one has ten more minas. Another one has made five more minas. Um, but then we get this this other fellow in verse twenty. Here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So here's a man who did risk assessment and said, well, if I take this money out, I could make money, maybe I could lose money. This is a hard man. I'm not going to... I'm just going to give him back what's his. We'll play it safe. And, and this man is condemned for that. He's a wicked servant. And his minas to be taken and given to those who have ten minas. And he's got all of these minas. And the story in Matthew, the guy is cast in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not exactly a happy place to go. And so that's what happens to the guy who plays it safe. That was not a safe place to be. At least they can put the money and make some interest at the bank. There's there's always got to be some growth, some some push into the discomfort. You can't remain in the safe place. Because it's not a place of faith. You're putting your trust in things other than God if you want to stay in the safe place. So it shows that some level of risk is necessary in order to live. Socrates is supposed to have said that the unexamined life is not worth living. We could also say the unrisked life is not worth living. Because if we don't risk, we're not finding opportunity for real gain. A life without risk is a life full of regret. And so risk is a part of life. And if we want to enjoy life, we need to take risks. And that gets us to faith.
Because a lot of times we talk about faith, and it's very easy to get all obsessed about faith in terms of mental assent to a proposition, and talk about issues of what the faith is and all of that, and, and never get beyond the definitions to the substance thereof. Uh, faith it has to involve a mental assent to a proposition. Uh, we talk about that as we talk about... Um, there's a city called Los Angeles, which is a true statement, and we put our trust in that as believe it is true, and only a fool would deny it, because there is a city in Los Angeles. Uh, we also think about it as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Uh, that is a math statement that in most situations is true. We believe it. And in both of those statements are true, and they don't necessarily uh, add, impose upon us a certain uh, idea of the way we should live. Um, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is very important. The mental assent to that proposition exists and, and needs to happen, but as James says in James chapter 2, the demons will do that and shudder. And demons aren't going to be saved, so just just having mental assent to the proposition that Jesus is Lord doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot on its own. And, and, and so, faith is not just about accepting the reality of God. It, in the Bible, it talks about the confidence one has in God. Because there's this very big gulf between believing in God and believe in God. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people don't believe God. Because it's one thing to believe God exists. It's even one thing to believe that God is willing and able to act in various ways. Glorious ways, fantastic ways. But it's quite another to hear what he says and to put your complete trust and confidence in him no matter how the situation might look. And that's why in the Hebrews 11, the Hebrew author will commend the men of old for that. We can look at some of them and gain some insight. One of them is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we're told that Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I personally wonder how that conversation went around the dinner table that night. Where Abraham spoke to Sarai's wife and said, Hey, Sarai, yeah, I think it's time we all packed up all our stuff and moved to Canaan, because I heard a voice telling me to do that today. You can only imagine what must Sarai must be thinking. And there's reason that we should commend the faith of Sarai to follow after him, because I think we all know what happens to people today who hear voices and the places that we put them. Um, and not to try to trivialize or minimize an important moment in Scripture, but at this point, we don't really hear anybody else serving God as Yahweh, as the one God. And so... Why should Abraham trust this voice? How can Abraham know this voice is the voice really of God and not of a, a demon or Satan or something? How can he be sure? Well, he has faith. He puts his trust in God that he is hearing the voice of God. And he goes to Canaan and he is blessed and he has all this stuff and he even gets a son in his old age that only God could have provided. And then in Genesis chapter 22... He hears that voice again, Abraham, here am I. And the voice cuts into him. Take your son, 
your only son, one whom you love, Isaac. That's coming from the Hebrews, just, just digging in, always pointing out this one. Take him to the land and to the Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. There is no confusion about what a burnt offering involved. And therefore, what would happen to poor Isaac? And how many of us would be willing to even countenance that this was the command of God? How could God do this when he's just giving me this child? How, and how many questions did we have that Abraham trusted? In the end of the story, of course, Isaac is not sacrificed. A, a ram is put in his place because he proved to God what Jesus would ask in times later, that Abraham was willing to give up the most important thing in his life, his son Isaac, and trust in God that he... Thus it must be to have the faith of Abraham. We need to put our full trust in God and be willing to give up even the things most precious to us, to God, if if he would so will. Another one is Gideon, Judges 6-8. through eight. You know, we saw there in Matthew, where Jesus talked about those that guy who's got 10,000, and whether he's going to meet another with 20,000. Well, think about poor Gideon here, who's supposed to meet a force of 135,000 with only 300 men in Judges 7 and verse 7. He's going to go up against a whole Midianite house with 300 guys. And how, how many of us would be willing to do that? How did he have the faith to do that? Well, Gideon proved willing to have that risk. He tested God. He wanted many confirmations from God. Um, and God said he was giving this 300 to show Israel, so Israel would know that it was not through Israel's own strength, but through God that it happened. Now, he did go up against 135,000, and in the end, there were more than 300 men involved on the Israelite side, but in the end, uh, between his forces and the force of Ephraim, they ended up killing all but 15,000 of the Midianite host. In Judges 8 and verse 10. Uh, another great example is Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, uh, the friend of, who will become the friend of David. In the first Samuel 14, there uh, line up against the Philistines. The Philistines have, uh, are in the middle of a, a long period of time where they're, they're the oppressive power, and uh, they've got all the power here. They even have all the weapons. Uh, Jonathan and Saul have weapons. We really get the impression a lot of the other Israelites have weapons. So in First Samuel 14, verse uh, 6, Jonathan talks to the guy who's carrying his armor. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. And the armor bearer says, Do all's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So Jonathan says, Okay, we'll cross over to the men, and we will go show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for Yahweh has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. And the, the, they go up, and uh, the Philistines say, Hey, come up to us. And so they had the sign that Yahweh gave them their hands, and indeed Yahweh had. They killed a bunch of Philistines. The Philistines get scared, and they start running, and uh, it turns into an entire rout, and God delivered Israel that day. And he did it because Jonathan had confidence. Jonathan's one dude. But he has confidence that Yahweh is able to save by many or by few. And so he's willing to... Um, put this forth to Yahweh, which way he should go, and, and the bold way is the way that Yahweh wants him to go. And he does it. And another great example 
is in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has built this big statue he wants everybody to bow down to. And if you don't, it's on, you get thrown to the furnace of fire. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to get into that, uh, to uh, bow down to the statue. And he says to them, uh, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In verse 16, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will... Deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What's so beautiful about the declaration of Shadow and Meshach and Abednego is, is their humble faith. The recognizing the possibility that they're going to go in the furnace and they're going to get burned up. That's a possibility. God may not rescue them in this time. But they're still going to remain firm in their faith in God because they know God is able to deliver them from the furnace, even if he chooses not to. Now, if you know the story, in the end, uh, God does deliver them from the fire. That they uh, are, in fact, untouched by the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar is made to marvel uh, and to believe. But it goes to show that great faith. That not only are they confident God is able to do things, and that God will do them, that they will remain steadfast in faith, even if things don't turn out exactly like they should. Now, we could go on and on and on and on a long time talking about the, the, the examples of faith. But what's important about all of them, Abraham and Gideon and Jonathan, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, none of them would have been able to do what they did on their own strength alone. Uh, you know what's going to happen if 300 men fight 135,000. You know what's going to happen when three guys are tossed into a fiery furnace. You know what's going to happen... Uh, when uh, a guy gets old and has no children. It's only because they trusted in God and God did powerful things through them that they were successful. And that was the only way they ever could be successful. If it was just a human thing, it would have failed. We also see this in the Apostles. You got 12 guys. You got some Galilean fishermen. You got some revolutionaries. You got some tax collectors. What are the odds in Vegas that they'd change the world? Not very high. But they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit empowered them, and they did great things. They did great things. They set the Roman world on fire. Not literally. But they overtook the world with their preaching. But now it's all in the past. We look in the Bible and the stories thousands of years ago. And it's easy to get into paralysis of faith. We know God could do these kind of things. But we act like he's not going to. After all, that was then and this is now. But there's so much of what God has said in the Bible that we believe firmly is as true now as it was then. We believe in Hebrews 1.3 that God continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power in Christ. It is written in Romans 8 and verse 28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 31, we, he asks, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who, is, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave him, up us, gave him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, he will go on to say in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. And there's this great promise in the prayer of Paul that he provides in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What about any of those things is limited to the first century? We may not have the word of prophecy, speaking in tongues. We may not have miraculous deeds being done in our hands. But does God love people today as he loved people in the past? Do we believe that God stands ready to act powerfully through us? And are we willing to depend upon him and not our own resources for him to do so? Or will we remain convinced that we've only got the resources at our control at hands and despair... The supernatural resources is just not dependable. In despair that we're going to be able to stem the rising tide of sin and darkness against us. If God has an eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord and through the church in Ephesians 3, 10, 11 is not an eternal purpose as active and real now as it was in the year 30. Are we suffering from loss and doubt and fear and spiritual atrophy just because we're not willing to take the risk of really truly depending upon God and His power today? This is the only thing between us and seeing things beyond all that we ask or think is just the need to trust that God is still willing to do so. Now there's some important disclaimers to all of that. We should believe that God is abundantly able and willing to accomplish great things. We've got to be careful, because there is a fine line between trusting God and living in reckless and irresponsible ways. After all, Jesus said, we saw in Luke 14, that we're supposed to renounce all that we have to follow him. But he also says in 1 Timothy 5 eight that we, anyone who does not take care of his own is worse than an unbeliever. So we've got to provide for your own people. Uh, in James 4, 1 through 3, James provides a very important warning, because a lot of people take a message like this about going out and putting trust in God, and they're going to say, well, you know what, if I just trust God, uh, I'm going to have all my diseases healed, I'm going to get a Mercedes-Benz, I'm going to have $5 million, I'm going to be doing so great. But James warns us, you know, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions in James 4, 1 through 3 that we should have no confidence that God is going to bless our desire for carnal things that will lead to just further works of the flesh. In 1 Peter 4, Peter reminds us that as we've each received the gifts of God, we should use them as very steward of His grace. Steward of God's very grace, excuse me. And that's very important because sometimes we like to overextend ourselves and we think we've got more than we've been given. And that's a concern as well. To not go beyond what what is for us to do. And, and maybe even, you hear this and you've, you're dealing with disappointment that you've just, you know, I've tried to step out in faith. When I stepped out in faith, it just hasn't worked out. And that's very possible. And then when that happens, we've got to do some important assessments. Were we really trusting in God? Were our motives honest? Did we confuse our carnal will with God's holy will? 
Now, it is still possible that we acted honestly in good faith and still had that disappointment. It is possible. And maybe at that point we need to not just give up, but to think that there's something else going on. That you know, Remember, God's all things work together for good. So it may not come immediately. It may take time. Uh, what we think we wanted is maybe not what we really wanted and really needed. And in so many ways, it's so much easier to see how God has brought you to a certain point today than it is to try to presume how it's all going to work out in the future, and even necessarily where you're at right now. So we've got to be careful with with this, stepping out in faith, and, and to not presume more than we ought about what's going on. But in the end, recognizing that God's time frame is not our time frame, that this is a very important part of all of this, in the end, Let's think about this. Because of God, we have life. As Paul said in Acts 17, In Him we live and move and have our being. In Genesis 1, He is our Creator. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, We have all spiritual blessings in Christ. Paul asked in Romans 8, 32, That's a very important question. If He did not spare His own Son, will He not graciously give us all things? What What is God going to hide in his bag and not give to us, but give his son? That doesn't make any sense. And so, if everything we have and are and could ever hope to be is only because of God in the first place, why would we resist entrusting ourselves and everything we have back to him? That is why we should never be discouraged in our attempts to entrust ourselves to God and His purposes. Because all we are His anyway. And we do well to give glory back to the Creator who made us. So yes, risk is a part of life, and there is value to risk management. Because we don't want to be found reckless and irresponsible in God's sight. But God has not called us to safe living with moderate, sensible ideals. We are called upon to trust ourselves to God as purposes, to reckon that we are no longer alive as Christ who lives in us. And the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God, in Galatians 2 and verse 20. And the more willing we are to step out in faith and depend on God, the more able we are to live fully and for such greater reasons. And we need to trust that as we step out in faith, God is going to help us through and sustain us through, that God will not disappoint and maybe as opposed to finding reasons why God would not provide harvests today as he did in past times, maybe we should be asking ourselves why we're not willing to trust that he can and wants to and is maybe just waiting for the opportunity to work through us in order to accomplish that. Uh, that we may plant in waters so that God will give the growth in First Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. Because he does still want all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth in First Timothy 2 and verse 4. So let us therefore be willing to get past the safe life and to live the life of true faith in Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful that you've joined us and we hope that you've been encouraged by uh, talking about risk and faith. If there's anything we can do to encourage you in your faith, maybe you'd uh, uh, like to talk more about faith, some risks and dangers and things of that nature. Maybe you'd like to talk more about how to begin putting your trust in Jesus and to becoming a Christian or 
maybe we just need prayers for strength to, 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 to grow in that faith, to to have that faith, or just something else going on in your life. Any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And per- Maybe you should learn more about the Venice Church of Christ. We'd love to, to hear from you. You can find out more about us at venicechurchofchrist.org and also we're on many uh, social media venues at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.